gate um, to our final week of Advent. Uh, a few announcements to throw your way, and then we're jumping right into prayer and the text. Uh, a few things, membership classes, those will be finished up uh, fairly soon here and sent out to those who've shown some interest in that. So just be watching for that. Also then, the Christmas Eve uh, gathering is coming up soon. We have recognized that there's rain in the forecast of all things. Uh, and so we'll kind of uh, call that the closer we get to that time. Uh, if it is raining, we'll simply cancel, and I hope you guys enjoy just kind of staying home or being uh, with family on Christmas Eve. And then uh, finally, we're going to be sending out uh, early this week uh, the COVID survey. We just want to get information from you. This is for uh, us as we think about the future, as we think about like the next few months, obviously we don't know exactly what the restrictions will hold for us in January and into February, but we want to kind of be hearing from you as to where you're at, what you're feeling uh, with all that's going on. That helps us lead everyone within the church. And so uh, it's going to be a COVID survey that's going to be sent out. We just ask that you fill that out as soon as possible. Hopefully with some downtime around the, the Christmas season, uh, you might be able to get that done and send that back to us. That'd be great. And then finally, uh, this is just kind of a follow-up on announcements that we've done in the past, but uh, obviously we, we've wanted to get in touch with uh, all of you. So uh, there's that sign-up list that we would like to kind of once again push uh, to get you signed up so we can have a little bit of time just connecting, hearing where you're at, what God's doing in your heart, just another way that we can kind of stay connected uh, during this time. We're going to jump into prayer. Uh, a few things that we're going to be praying for is just single parents uh, during this season, as well as the addicted, and then finally, graced City Church of Frankfurt. So join me in prayer, and then we'll jump into the text together. Father, we come to you, and we thank you, even um, as we spend some time praying before the music, thank you that you will bring all things to a final day of completion. Lord, thank you that that day of completion will be a day of utter peace where sin and brokenness will be finally and fully banished. So Jesus, we honor you, uh, but we also honor you as the one who even here and now with all the tensions and all the difficulties, you are for us that Prince of Peace. You are for us something of uh, uh, our completion. And so Lord, I, I pray um, I think first of, of the woman who had the issue of blood. She had spent all her money. She had gone all to all these different doctors. Nothing could bring her satisfaction. And so she reached out and touched your garment, and she found healing from you. Jesus, again, we thank you that you are our completion. You are our wholeness. And may we feel even something as we gather online, something of your own statement to her. You are healed. Go in peace. So, Lord, we trust. We trust. As we have sung, as has been declared through your word, we, we trust that you are our completion. You are our prince of peace. 
So I pray specifically during this time for single parents, especially through a holiday season, the many different dynamics that uh, they face, as well as something of heartache that many carry. God, I pray that there would be something of of supernatural strength given to them. I pray that there is a peace that passes all understanding through this, through this time. Uh, but God, as we, have, as we have spoken, as we've sung, as we've heard from your word, be their completion, be their peace during this season. And God, we, um, you know our story as a church. You know the ups and downs that we have faced, and we, we pray for those who are addicted. Um, God, we, we know that with addiction comes many deep uh, issues of pain and hurt, some self-inflicted, some uh, having been inflicted by others. But Jesus, once again, we look to you as the one who can truly bring healing to our bodies, to our minds, to the deep things of our hearts. Lord, we, we don't gather and we don't sing Christmas songs and we, we don't take these moments to come to you in prayer because we believe that sentimentality is something to be valued. We trust in you. You are the Prince of Peace. And so we put the addicted before you and say, God, would you do a redeeming work in them? Jesus, would you stretch out your hand to them? Would you touch their hearts, bring healing and hope to their lives? We pray this for your own namesake and for your glory. God, I pray specifically for uh, Grace City Church of Frankfurt as they're under the L, facing all kinds of different dynamics in ministry. Um, Lord, I pray that you would give them um, something of a, just a, an awareness of your pleasure over them. God, I pray that they would, they would be able to smile, even with all the tensions, even with all the questions and and how to do ministry rightly with such complex issues at hand. I pray that you would give them something of just like utter contentment because they sense your smile, they sense your pleasure, they sense you saying, well done. God, I pray that you would encourage them. And would they be, as we've studied in Revelation, would they be a lamp that shines brightly for your sake and for your glory? Pray that you would utilize them for your great kingdom purposes. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Revelation chapter 3, uh, we're considering the church of Sardis. Revelation chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then, what you received and heard, keep it 
and repent. If you will not awake, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers or overcomes will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Churches can and do die. In fact, in the early 1900s, as we've said before, Wissanoming was dubbed the Holy City. And why? Well, it was known for having nine churches in the neighborhood, almost twice the number of any other surrounding neighborhood at the time. And from what I understand, uh, most of those nine churches we would consider as being evangelical. That is, they believed in and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done for us. But over time, those nine churches died. Churches can and do die. And when we look across Philadelphia at the ever-growing number of abandoned church buildings, we can come to realize once again that this hasn't just been a phenomena for Wissanoming, but it's a reality for our city. And it's a reality for many places beyond our city. Churches can and do die. In 2014, uh, Tom Rayner, uh, he's the president of Lifeway Christian Research, which is known for like its statistical evaluations of the church and the culture. He came out with a book called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. In it, he sought to answer the question, why? Why do churches decline? Why do they die? And in exploring several deceased churches, he found one or more of the following factors at work within those churches. First, the church treated the past as hero. The church was always looking back to the glory days of the past. Second, they didn't embrace their community. They didn't meet their community where their community was at. They didn't meet the needs of the community. Third, they pointed their budget inward. It was all about maintaining the stuff that was going on within the church. Fourth, they stopped sharing Jesus with others. Fifth, they let preference rule. It was all about the wants and desires of the individuals. Sixth, leaders, pastors, didn't stay for long periods of time. Seventh, the church didn't pray. Eighth, the church had no clear purpose. And finally, the church obsessed over its facilities. Now, these kind of, 
autopsy studies of declining and dead churches, man, they've been quite the rage over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, and yet, you know, they can find, we can find something so helpful, instructive in them. But the point being is dead or declining churches isn't anything new. You see, this is the church of Sardis. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature. It's where we are shown heaven's perspective, or in this case, like a heavenly diagnosis of the earthly experience of this particular church. And while everything seems fine in the church of Sardis, Jesus, the great physician, has pronounced it in verse 1 as dead. Unless there is some quick action taken by the church. Again, everything seems fine, but in reality there is a fading pulse. Death is at their door. And therefore, it's either to kind of follow the doctor's orders or it's death. Now again, this is written to the church in Sardis, but we know as we've studied the other churches that it's meant for the church generationally and geographically. It's meant for all churches to learn from the church of Sardis. So just as Jesus would check the vital signs of the church in Sardis, so he might check our vital signs. How is our health as a church? How is our pulse doing? This is what the text does for us. So let's together consider first the diagnosis, then the remedy, and then the promise that Jesus provides the church in Sardis. First, the diagnosis. Jesus is, in some sense, like inviting us into the examination room, right? You, can, you should hear, in some sense, the gloves snapping. He's about to take the vital signs of the church of Sardis, but again, as well, us too. So verse 1, it provides a lens through which to see and understand the diagnosis of the church of Sardis. Jesus holds the seven spirits of God in one hand, and in the other hand, the seven stars. Now, if you remember, the seven spirits refer to the Spirit of God. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 4. The Spirit of God is the all-sufficient Spirit. And remember the, the symbolism here that the Spirit is the lamp or the light that is resting upon the lampstand, which is the churches. And so it's the Spirit here that Jesus holds in one hand, the all-sufficient Spirit who animates and empowers the life and the witness of the church. Perhaps we should hear something of Acts chapter 1, verse 8 kind of ringing in our ears that you will receive power after the Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Jesus is holding the all-sufficient Spirit in his hand, the one who animates and empowers the life and witness of the church. But then he's also holding the seven stars, which are the angels or the heavenly guardians, we could say, of the churches. And the fact that Jesus holds these angels, these stars in his hands, symbolically refers to Christ's authority over heaven and over earth. It's this authority, 
if you remember, that becomes the legal basis for the church's witness. So Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make followers of me. You see, the fact that Jesus holds the seven spirits and the seven stars in his hands is to demonstrate that he alone is the sole empowerment and the legal right of the church's witness. It's Christ who baptizes his people in his Holy Spirit. It's Christ then who grants his church authority We should hear something of Luke 10 ringing in our ears as well. He grants his followers authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. For the church to know what she has in Christ when it comes to her witness, he holds both the sole empowerment of our witness as a church, but also the legal right of our witness as a church. Now, it's with this that Jesus now turns to the church in Sardis and states its diagnosis. Verse 1, you have a reputation. You have, as the text would say, a name, a namas. Jesus is going to use the term name again and again through this address. You have the name. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Heaven's perspective, this divine diagnosis has been declared. While the church may be known for being alive and active, it's actually dead. Heaven's perspective has spoken. It's simply to see for our purposes that the true vitality of a church is not determined by its busyness nor by its activity. Ironically, the city of Sardis had a reputation historically for being one of the most wealthy cities in the area. And and yet, at that time, it had become known as a cemetery of a thousand hills. Surrounding the city were these hills, and upon the hills were these cemeteries that you could see, as some would say, from seven miles away. It had an historical reputation of grandeur, of wealth, value. But over time, it became a place marked by death. So it was true of the church in Sardis as well. It had a reputation for being busy, for being alive, for having something of substance. And yet, as Jesus says, it is, in effect, dead. The question then for us in understanding the text is, what was so fatal here? What what is causing the problem here, what, what is causing this rigor mortis to set into this church? Most scholars believe that verse 5 actually tips us off to what exactly was going on here. Although, as we'll see, the rest of the text gives 
clarity. Jesus says, the one who overcomes, in verse 5, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This is a text taken from the Gospels uh, where Jesus, for instance, in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So what is the reason for this kind of impending death? They were not proclaiming Christ. They were in fact ashamed of him. They might have been busy with all kinds of social work, perhaps even doing good things within the community there. But it seems as though the heartbeat of the matter centered on their witness to Christ. And, and, and you must know, as, as we think about the city of Sardis, culturally, it wasn't any different from all the other cities that we've studied thus far. It would have been filled with pagan worship and emperor worship and trade guilds. They would have, they would have all had their place within this city. And, and once again, for the church in Sardis, it provided all kinds of reasons for why naming the name of Christ could cost them. It could cost them their very livelihood. It could cost them their lives. But that's the point of this passage, and it's the point of that Mark 8 passage that I just read, just two verses earlier in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. Jesus emphasizes, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. The language is clear that this church in Sardis is dead because they're not willing to truly give up their lives and reputation for Christ. They're failing to be a witness for him. It's also why Jesus uses the term name so many times within this address. Verse 1, verse 5, twice, I believe, in verse 5. He uses this word uh, and peppers it through the text to illustrate this kind of same concept. If you are willing to live loud for Jesus, if you're willing to bear his name or his reputation, then he will name you. Your name will be found in the book of life. And this again is why Jesus is saying death is setting into this church. They were trying to hold on to this life and their reputation in it, but in fact were losing their life. They were losing their witness for Christ. This idea of being a witness for Christ finally is further emphasized by the imagery of the garments in this text. Here in verse 4, for instance, Jesus says, Yet you have a few names, a few of reputation, a few individuals of reputation who have not soiled their garments. 
The garments, again, represent something of their witness. It's like, you know, in our day, certain logos or brands that we would wear. We, we, we witness to those logos in brands, right? We, we rep those logos in brands. In a real way, the garments refer to our witness. And of course, then, the fact that these are not soiled garments means that these individuals have not compromised like the majority of the church has. They haven't recoiled in fear in giving witness to Jesus. So they have clean garments. Folks, it's also why we could go back to the book of Ephesians, for instance, and Paul will use this language of putting on the new man and putting off the old man. It's the idea that we are to put on Christ. We are to live like Christ. We are to put on his righteousness and put on his holiness and be careful how we use our mouth and be careful how we relate to others. Why? So that Christ is seen through his people. So that their actions, as well as their words, would make much of Christ. That's the whole purpose here of utilizing this language of Garments. It's all about the witness of God's people. Jesus is holding out, if you remember, the seven spirits and the seven stars. Jesus is saying that I am the one who can bring true change, true life to this church, if you will but follow my directives. This is a rescue mission that we are seeing in play as we look at this text. They are failing to give witness to Christ within the context of the city of Sardis. They're failing to evangelize. They're failing to speak to others the truth of Jesus. And Jesus is saying... That is your pulse. That's your vital sign. You're failing to live for the reputation of Jesus is actually what is working death in you. It's your vital sign. Right? And so the question then is, okay, what's the remedy? What is Jesus offering to the church as one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars in his hand? What is the remedy? What will inject life into this dying church. Well, Jesus provides five life-giving commands. First, look at verse 2. He says, wake up. Wake up. It's a call to arise out of their spiritual lethargy. Ironically, Sardis was historically known as a city for being one of the most fortified cities. It had mountains on all three sides, so they only had to defend one side, and yet they became renowned throughout history as being a, a, a city that actually fell twice because the watchmen failed at their job. They fell asleep on the job. So Jesus perhaps is ironically using the history, the well-known history of Sardis to kind of work his point in here. He's saying, wake up, wake up from your lethargy, recognize that your lack of following after Christ and giving witness to Christ is actually working death within this church. Wake up. Verse 3, he says, and if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief. In the night. 
Right? I will be like those armies that came at nighttime and sacked the city because they weren't watching. They weren't doing their job. They fell asleep. They weren't awake. What is Jesus saying? He's like, if you don't stir yourselves out of your spiritual apathy and embrace his call upon your life, I will make an end of this church. But then secondly, Jesus not only commands them to wake up, but then to strengthen what remains. As verse 2 says, their works were incomplete. It's simply to say that they were weak in their witness to Christ. So they, were suff- they weren't exactly suffering opposition uh, from, from the culture because their faith at this point was more so unobservable. Right? They, they weren't feeling the tension necessarily with the culture around them because their witness was practically silent. They weren't suffering anything because they weren't saying anything. But if they weren't suffering opposition, then they certainly weren't seeing anyone come to faith. And so Jesus is saying, strengthen your witness. Start living and speaking for my sake. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Strengthen the witness. Begin to speak and live for Christ. But then, third, he goes a bit more deep in his command. And he says, third, in verse 3, Remember what you have received and heard. What had they received and heard? What did the church in Sardis, what did they receive? What did they heard? But the gospel the good news of Jesus. It's the, it's the essence of Christ, who he is and what he has done for them. Jesus is saying, remember what it's been all about from the very beginning. It's been about this gospel, this work of salvation that Jesus himself has accomplished for us and then given to us to be received by faith alone. And so, You see, the point that Jesus is getting at is to remember the radical reality of the gospel. The fact is, is that when you lose something of the wonder of the gospel, you'll lose the witness to the gospel. When we forget exactly what depths of sin and eternal judgment that we were saved from by Christ, then we will forget what mercy and love is ours In Christ, when we forget, when we lose the wonder, we will lose something of the witness. The reality is we naturally talk about what we are excited about. So when you've lost the wonder of the gospel, you will lose the witness of the gospel. And Jesus is saying, oh, remember it. Place your attention back upon it. Consider the glories of the gospel. But then fourth, he says, not only to wake up, not only to strengthen your witness, not only to remember the gospel, but now keep the gospel. It's a call to diligently guard and maintain the gospel. Keep it center to all things. Don't allow additions. Don't allow subtractions. No, guard this gospel. Keep it. 
And why, why, why is it so important that they would keep it? Well, remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It is the power of God until salvation. The truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's this gospel, this truth, which is the power of God unto salvation. So keep it, guard it, protect it. But then finally, the final command Jesus places down is, is that they are to repent. Let's just be honest for a moment. We won't perfectly live loud for Jesus. We won't perfectly bear his name without contradiction or reproach. It just won't be the case. Because... We know our hearts, right? They are prone to wonder, as the hymn says. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But you see, whenever we have lost focus or lost the wonder of the gospel or compromised our witness to Christ, Jesus provides us a way back to him, repentance. It's the normal stuff of everyday Christianity, repentance, repentance, repentance. It's a change of mind, as some have, have uh, defined it, a change of mind that leads to a change of action. So it's to reach out to Jesus, to return to him for forgiveness and cleansing, but then to, to mind his truth, to keep in mind his truth, and then begin to act upon it. That's the essence of what faith looks like in the process of repentance, a change of mind that leads to a change of action, that I'm coming to Jesus first for forgiveness, but then I'm taking his truth and bearing it upon my mind and then acting upon it. A change of mind that leads to a change in action. And as the one who we turn to in our repentance, don't forget, he is the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. He is the one who imparts power and authority to us. Even when we have failed, we turn back and he's ready there to impart his spirit and his authority so that we might bear the name of Jesus and even do so as we would endure the trials and challenges of doing so. So Jesus is saying, the great physician, as he's brought the church of Sardis into the examination room, he's saying, wake up, strengthen your witness, remember the gospel, keep or guard the gospel, and when you fail to do any of that, repent, turn back to Jesus, and be filled with his spirit, and embrace the authority that he has granted you to bear his name. Now, finally, what we have is a promise, a promise kind of to the remedy promise to this remedy is life. Verse 5, he says, your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Th this book is 
Later on in Revelation, it'll be referred to as the Lamb's Book of Life. Uh, we could say something like this, that it's, it's kind of like a registry of citizenship. All of those who truly belong to Christ are found written in the Book of Life. And, and, and in some sense, it's kind of just a simple idea, maybe that we would just glaze right over. But it should come with something of a breathtaking response. Maybe we could compare it to uh, something like Schindler's List. If you know the story there, to be found on Schindler's List meant life when impending doom and death was being felt. To be able to go work in Schindler's factory meant that you were being uh, saved, rescued, brought from death to life. In a real sense, this is the weight of what Jesus is speaking to, that those who bear his name well, he will not blot their name out of the book of life. It will be indelibly written. It is that which promises life. You've been brought from death to life. It's true salvation. True salvation from an eternity of death and doom. So to have one's name written in the book of life is absolutely breathtaking. It's to know something of the tender but altogether indescribable mercy of Christ. What a promise. You see, it's this reality of having our names written in the book of life, which is to be a controlling truth to us. It's this book, it's this book that Jesus mentions even when he sends out the 72 in Luke chapter 10. If you remember that story, he gives them authority. And they come back so astonished that the demons are subject to them in Jesus' name. And Jesus is just so thrilled that he's praising the Father. But then he tells them, don't rejoice in the fact that the demons are subject to you in my name. But that your name is written in the book of life. There's no greater reality than this. Even when our witness for Christ becomes something of an adventure, even when we see souls saved, even when we see demons cast out, even when we see healings take place, even when we see the miraculous in this journey, in this mission of making much of Jesus, oh, there's no greater miracle. There's nothing that comes close to the reality of having your name written in the book of life. What a mercy that represents. Now, in summary, perhaps we could just conclude by saying that the pulse of the church is her witness to Christ. If you want to know if a church is alive or if it's dead, don't watch all the busyness. 
Don't look at all the activity taking place. No, evaluate the witness. And the pulse of the church or the witness for Jesus is a direct outworking of their heart for Jesus. Either the heart is failing and fading, you know, comprised with just kind of compromised with worldly reputation and wants and desires, or it's, it's beating with health for Christ. It's, it's then revealed in the pulse of its witness. When it comes down to it, Tom Rayner wasn't wrong. When we become ingrown with activity and budgets and focused on our own preferences, it might seem as though the church is active but it's actually demonstrating the fact that the heart has grown cold to Christ. The pulse, the witness to Christ is fading. But when the gospel, who Jesus is, what he has done, when the gospel is central, when he's remembered, when he is guarded, when he is felt with wonder, and when... He's where we run to when our hearts are growing cold. Oh, it's to his own that he then holds out his power and authority to his church to bear his name and to do it well. Jesus began all of this when the New Testament church began at Pentecost, and so it continues today. Jesus offers himself the sole empowerment, but also the legal right. He grants that to the church, that she might bear witness to him. So, the question might be stated to us, you know, if we were invited back to the examination room, what diagnosis would we receive What does our pulse look like? What do our vitals look like? What does our witness for Christ look like? Is it fading or is it strong? Perhaps just as we conclude, it might be helpful to leave you with just a few practicals that might strengthen our witness as a church. First, and these are simple, first, your witness must begin with wonder. It's important that we keep the reality of the gospel central and not just as some sort of academic bullet-pointed reality. Here's who Jesus is, here's what he's done, but know that our hearts would actually stand in wonder at who Jesus is and what he's done. That's what Advent is all about. The giver of life came to give his life so that we might have life in Him, this is the reality of Advent, this is the reality of the gospel to place our eyes upon the glories of who Jesus truly is. Your witness must begin with wonder. You yourself must rehearse the incredible mercies that have come your way through Jesus to see something of an internal destiny dramatically change from that of eternal judgment 
that of eternal bliss in relationship to the Lord. Your witness must begin with wonder. But your witness, then, will also then require something of intentionality. We aren't supposed to just wait for the Spirit to bring situations about. He does do that, but that's not the call of the church. The call of the church is to actually be intentional about our witness uh, to Christ. Right? Even in this text, it's clear that the church has a role to play, that she must be intentional. Yes, to move under the sway of the Holy Spirit, but to be, in some sense, taking the step, it's always going to feel as though it's a, a risk. There, there's always going to be something felt, and it, what if I'm not saying it right? And, and, and what, if, how, what if they respond negatively to what I'm saying? There's going to be all of this at work, and yet there's a call to be intentional, to speak well of Jesus, even if it means fumbling words out of our mouth. The Holy Spirit will pick up the rest. Your witness will require intentionality. And even for those of us who are more familiar with Reformed doctrine, let's never just sit back. God's sovereignty does not mean that we just become passive. He has been very specific in his sovereign purposes that he is going to accomplish all that he is going to accomplish through means. How will they hear if there's not a preacher? If there's not someone to proclaim the gospel? It must mean a level of intentionality. We must speak up. Your witness will require something of intentionality. So first, let it begin with wonder. But let's not forget that it's going to require intentionality on our parts. Let the Spirit lead us, grace us to speak well of Jesus. But then finally, your witness should be kept simple. We've talked about this in the past. When it comes to witnessing to others, you know, a simple way of going about it is simply asking their story having the opportunity then to share your story and then to tell the God's story. The fact is that all of our stories will most often reveal something broken in this world and it's always an attempt to try to find some sort of answer to our brokenness. So when you invite people to share their stories, well... There's going to be something of, of information given that describes something of what they're placing their hope in. And as you would have the opportunity to share your story, so you will have the opportunity to share what you have placed your hope in. Ultimately, then, to share God's story, the one who is hope, who came for us, who lived for us, died for us, and was raised for us. Let it be simple. You don't have to have all the answers up front. It can just simply be the ongoing work of growing a relationship where, once again, 
you're listening to their story, sharing your own story, and then telling the story, God's story. That's it. So, let your witness begin with wonder. Let your witness then be intentional, but then keep it simple. The Holy Spirit is inviting you into the adventure when it comes down to it. He's inviting you in. So, let's keep our eyes on the gospel. Let's rehearse the incredible mercies that we've found in Christ. Let's be intentional to be, speak well of Christ. Maybe, maybe even this season, maybe the Lord even right now is placing specific names on your mind of just like messages. Maybe it's Facebook messages. Maybe it's text, just words of encouragement sent out to those who, who he's kind of placing upon your heart at, at this point. Just do little things. Keep it simple. Dive into relationship with folks. Draw them out. And then give testimony to the person and work of Jesus. Let it begin with wonder. Be intentional, but keep it simple. May we be a church whose vital, so, uh, vital signs are strong. That we are those who, yes, man, our hearts are warm with the mercies of Christ. And where we're taking opportunity, regular opportunity, to witness, give witness uh, to Christ in this world. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you. Oh, Lord, that you would um, bind us in to your mission, to your purposes. Thank you for what you're doing in redemptive history. Jesus, thank you that um, you have come to be life for us. So God, I pray that you would now send your spirit and even direct our hearts and minds to those that you uh, would have us bear witness, uh, that, that we would carry the name of Jesus, that we would speak well of the name of Jesus to certain particular individuals. Spirit, thank you that you're with us in all of this. Jesus, thank you that you've granted us the authority, the right to proclaim your name, to bear your name before a broke broken and dying world. So Lord, we pray then um, that you would bring about fruitfulness. Yes, we know that there's going to be pushback as we would proclaim your name. We know that there's going to be hardship. And yet we pray that you would grant fruitfulness as we speak of you to others. Grant us the boldness of Acts chapter 4. Grant us the boldness, the courage to speak well when you would have us do so. And may there be fruit that is born, but may you receive the glory for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.